Although I pretend to be a serious architectural historian, there is a kind of thrill of clambering up to the tallest turret and surveying the scene. Yeah, <laughs> as if you sort of own the place. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily only if it's just exhilarating, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I love it. Hi, and welcome to the Country Life Podcast with me, your host, James Fisher. Each episode, we bring you all the things we love at Country Life. And this week, we're going deep on some of the country's most famous and recognizable buildings, castles. Joining us will be the man who has quite literally written the book on them. He's one of the nation's favorite architectural writers, has been contributing to the magazine for more than 25 years, and has held the esteemed title of architectural editor for the past 16. Today, our very own Dr. John Goodall brings you his favorite five castles. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. It's rather exciting to be a first one with you, James. Very good. <laughs> it's very you. kind. So we've got we've got a few castles to go through today, a sort of top five list, if you will. Do you want to start us off with your with your first choice here? Yes, I've tried to choose some castles that give an arc of their history to the present day. And so my first choice is Castle Headingham in Essex, which is a most fantastic building. Look probably the most important 12th century building, secular building in private hands in the country. Uh, one run by and managed today by a wonderful couple, Jason and Demetra Lindsay, who have been looking after the building and the house beside it. Wonderful. And so why is it, why is it such an important castle in our history? Well, it's a castle that's um, redeveloped in the early 12th century by a man called Aubrey de Vere, and he is involved in the civil wars that are fought between Stephen and Matilda. And he's offered by both of them lots of titles. And he chooses eventually the title of Earl of Oxford. And in about 1140, he builds this enormous tower, which is a sort of emblem of his newly won title. And the tower has survived to the present day. It's a building on an enormous scale. And it also makes clear how luxurious the lives of the rich were, even in the 12th century. And it may look rather barn-like, but, you know, it has fireplaces and great uh, room, one great room for a ceremonial use. One of the things that's so fun about it now is that um, it's, it's twice lost all its flaws, um, uh, once just fell into ruin and uh, on another occasion in the First World War uh, a group of people using it as a lookout leave a stove alight and the entire interior burns out. (laughs) But uh, in the 20th century and lastly the Lindsays themselves have restored the interior and it's now an incredible wedding venue and it's been done really thoughtfully in the idiom of the 12th century. It's rather fantastic and you can go in there and have banquets and weddings um, and feel as though you are a, a medieval nobleman once again. And is it, is it good to feel like a medieval nobleman every once in a while? Yes, of course, it's, and, unless maybe you're a noble woman, <laughs> and you might want to feel like that instead. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, th- it's, uh, I think it's really um, fun, and as I say, it brings home the scale of domestic life, uh, you know, for, 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 the, for the very wealthy in the very distant past. I mean, it's you know, nearly 900 years old. It's incredible to be able to walk around in those apartments. And I believe the most recent thing that's happened there is that the Lindsays have created a bedroom on the top floor of the building with a splendid four-poster bed <laughs> where you can stay after the wedding. And um, I've only ever seen photographs of it, but again, it looks completely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so is that a sort of, you know, we, we always interpret castles, certainly in my youth, as, you know, large siege engines rocking up and a sort of man sticking their head over the top saying, ha-ha, you can't get me. But... Were they were they principally built as like a, a sort of status, a symbol of status? 
Well, I think they're both. I mean, particularly in this period, I suppose the point I'd make is that building in stone is not a way of constructing for an emergency. If someone's going to come and kill you, you don't start building a stone tower. And this stone tower is incredibly elaborate. Um, One of the fascinating details about it is uh, that illustrates how highly managed it was, is that all the latrines in the building Mm -hmm. open into the basement, which means that somebody... No, you expect, you know, latrines to open out of a building, but that means that somebody had to spend all their time cleaning the jakes out. And these must have been highly maintained um, and splendid buildings. So, I mean, you could say that having inward opening latrines is a way of protecting yourself against sieges. But I mean, the point is that this is, whatever the defensive capabilities of this building, it is hugely demonstrative. And it just clips 100 foot, which is the benchmark of the medieval skyscraper. You just get over 100 feet and suddenly you're in a, a different realm of architecture, these towering buildings. Mm. And of course, you know, titles are very often the reason in the Middle Ages why, why people build castles, because a nobleman without a castle is like a knight without a horse. You get your title and you desperately need one, and Headingham is a wonderful illustration of exactly that process. So in a medieval 12th century Essex, sort of the equivalent of Dubai these days with its giant... <laughs> Spanning towers of, of stone. So I think in the civil wars in the 1140s, everywhere in England is a little bit like Dubai, but with people <laughs> throwing up uh, these big buildings because the king and Mitchell um, don't really have control of what's going on. Mm. Um, and some of the, you know, these castles that I say there, you, you don't start building a hundred foot tower to protect yourself in the middle of an emergency. No. What you do when you're loaded with money and you wish to show it. No, but I would, I would, if I was trying to keep people away, certainly consider building the latrines. Sort of go outside. That <laughs> Inward would, face. That would keep me. That would keep me away from the walls. <laughs> so the next castle on your list, I see, is Knaresborough. Would you like to tell us a bit about why you chose this one? Yes, this is a ruined building that is much less well known than it ought to be. It's a prodigy of uh, English architecture at a moment where. English architecture in a European sense is incredibly sophisticated. Um, it also has an amazing backstory. Edward II um, is, comes to the throne in 1307, and almost immediately afterwards, he invites back a figure, a young Gascon knight who's his favourite, called Piers Gaveston, back to the kingdom. Now, we don't know the nature of the relationship between Edward II and Beers Gaveston. It may have been homosexual, or it may have just been really, really close. Yeah. But um, it annoys everybody. And Piers Gaveston makes it worse by being flamboyant, arrogant, and sharp-tongued. Mm. At the very beginning of the reign, Edward II gives him the, the Earldom of Cornwall, which is a huge body of estates, which includes surprisingly, Knaresborough Castle. And he starts building there with his own money this great tower. And he's effectively, it's effectively the king building a tower on the property of his favourite. And the tower, as I say, is a sort of prodigy building. It's designed by London masons uh, and uh, it's got incredibly complex geometry. And it also preserves a throne recess, which is presumably for Edward II himself. It survives now, having been blown apart after the Civil War. It's besieged in the 1640s, and uh, 
much of it is, is destroyed, but the basement of the building, the lower levels of it, and this parts of this throne room still survive. And they are fantastically detailed and uh, wonderful. As you probably know, the long story of Piers Gaveston is a terrible one. He, you know, he comes back to England illicitly, um, and uh, the barons of the realm unite against him. They nearly capture Edward II, and he in Newcastle. The king runs away with Gaveston. They abandon the queen at Tynemouth, uh-huh. and uh, Gaveston is later captured at Scarborough Castle. And he surrenders Scarborough Castle uh, um, on condition of self, safe passage, but his enemies are not going to let him get away. And the Earl of Warwick famously intercepts Piers Gaveston on his journey southwards, and he is brutally murdered um, uh, amidst public rejoicing on the way south. And Edward II never forgives those um, who uh, commit this murder. And it, in fact, lays the foundations for his own deposition and brutal murder at Berkeley Castle, um, famously um, and possibly truthfully, uh, <laughs> eviscerated with a red-hot poker, yes. thrust up the fundament. Yeah. Um, a horrible, horrible death. But uh, whether true or not, I mean, I think the manner of his death for medieval chroniclers uh, is really a way of expressing what's regarded as the catastrophic failure of his reign and the humiliation of the Battle of Bannockburn and things. Yes, no, I mean, it, it sounds like he was roundly unpopular. <laughs> yeah, I feel like not even my worst enemy would, would deal with me in that way. Next up on our list, we have Lancaster Castle. Would you like to tell us a bit about this one? A little bit about Lancaster Castle. Well, I chose this again because this is a building that, uh, until very recently, was completely inaccessible, in plain sight, but inaccessible as a prison, um, a role that it had served for um, hundreds of years, I mean, since the foundation of the castle in the 11th century. I had a really weird visit to Lancaster Castle just after um, the prison had been closed. And I didn't know this at the time, but apparently when prisons close, all the locks of the prison are removed. And Lancaster Castle is expanded in the 18th century as a prison, and there's a great courtroom designed beside it uh, in the late 18th century. Uh, Magnificent buildings. In fact, the whole apparatus of Georgian justice in all its gaunt brutality is preserved in the castle. But um, what was strange is that you could walk around a prison with all the signs of it having been a prison, all the cells and all these things, but because all the locks had been removed, every single door opened. And I can't tell you how weird that was, particularly for someone like me who's forever trying to poke into you know strange <laughs> spaces and see odd things. Um, suddenly at Lancaster Castle, every single strange door and, and you know, floorboard and everything was lifted up. There were no locks. And it was such a surreal uh, experience. <laughs> and But it's a, a, an incredible building and now um, publicly accessible. And in, the most important you know, medieval remain there is, is, is the great gate tower that faces mm-hmm. the town. But the whole thing is a sort of fascinating uh, collection of interiors with what I always also find very melancholy, but I suppose it's important always to remember, is that you know, all the graffiti of prisoners, um, uh, which feels somehow so depressing. I find it, you know, awful, these people, you know, literally with so much time on their hands that they create these elaborate marks and they feel as though, no doubt, they're losing their lives in these places. They must have been awful to be locked up in. Did they tell you why they have to take away all the locks when they... 
No, well, I don't know. I, I imagine it's something to do with the security and uh, making sure that you can't duplicate them. But to be honest, I have no idea. I just <laughs> I just remember <laughs> walking through all these, you know, being let loose in this building where every door in the prison opened. Very odd. And it was a prison up until 2011, so we're not talking, you know, 19th century. No, indeed. And, I mean, it and Oxford Castle were the last two medieval castles that... I'm aware of that uh, uh, were fun- functioned as prisons, and uh, you know I'm sure it's a good thing they they no longer do so. The conditions I suspect in both were pretty difficult. Yes, I, well, it's interesting to know that castles are just as useful for keeping people in as they are for keeping people out. <laughs> um, it says here that it's still a, a venue for the for the Crown Court. Is that quite unusual for a for a castle? Well, I suppose it is. I mean, that judicial role has continued. And of course, in some ways, it's quite useful when you still have a very contained environment. Because, of course, in Georgian justice, you wanted people to be kept in the place where they were going to be tried. And at Lancaster, um, you know, the full process, too, that, you know, you emerge from um, if if you were convicted of a capital offence, there's also the, the, the door from which you hung. I mean, and the whole arrangement of the court um, is still preserved, the courtrooms and the grand jury room where people would meet before executions mm-hmm. and all the systems of access between them. Court, courts generally are rather fascinating in Lancaster too because they involve all these different groups of people who have to meet in one room but the point is that before they meet in that room they mustn't meet anywhere else. Yeah. So you know, you've know, got access from cells, access for the uh, for the judges, access um, for uh, the lawyers, and all these things arranged in Mm. quite complicated configurations. So, and you mentioned sort of the instruments of Georgian justice. Would you be able to tell us (laughs) what some of those are? (laughs) Well, I mean, in, uh, you know, before the 19th century, you know, you you were, the only reason for which you would be in prison for any length of time is if you were a debtor. And everybody else basically goes into the cells until the next assize court visits, the next visits the assize judges. And then if you're found guilty, you're either executed or punished and then yeah. released. Um, at, or, or, or if you're found innocent, you're released. So there really isn't any need for any capacity yeah. in in Georgian uh, prisons, I mean, early Georgian prisons. But of course, uh, latterly, with the imprisonment of more and more people for over long periods of time in prison sentences, becoming a, a phenomenon of punishment um, uh, a, a, and retributive justice, you get the separation of women's cells, men's cells, and debtors still in their own area. And in fact, many of the most interesting bits of Lancaster Castle are, um, you know, are the debtors' cells, which were, many of them were sort of adapted medieval towers. The principal debtors' cell mm-hmm. is uh, adapted towers. And much of the graffiti uh, the older graffiti is done by debtors, in fact. The next castle on our list, I believe, is, and this is one I always pronounce incorrectly, Beaver Castle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Can you tell us a bit about Beaver Castle? Yeah, well, I chose Beaver. I think actually this is one of the ones. Am I right in saying that you subbed this article? When, yes. Uh, when, I, when, when I think that's right. I have to, just before I answer that, I have to ask you yeah. what it's like subbing. You, for a while, a long while ago, you used to sub the architectural articles. It was interesting because, you know, architecture was not something that I was particularly aware of before I started working at Country Life. But it's definitely become something of a, 
small passion of mine, purely because, you know, I've read so much of your work and the various other contributors who write for the magazine. And it's, you know, stuff seeps in and it's, it's, it's actually very interesting. And as you say, you know, these buildings all the way from, you know, the Norman conquest to the present day, they tell, as much as they are fascinating on their own, they tell such an interesting story about what was happening in the rest of the country at the time, because, you know, you can tell through the styles, oh, this is what was popular then, or, you know, in the 12th century, it was, you know, status. I imagine it's basically always been status, but how you display that status has changed in such different ways. You know, I found it immensely, immensely interesting. It was some of my favourite stuff to do. Yeah, well, I suppose architecture is the most expensive of all art forms, mm. um, and it's also the one art form you can never escape. So it, it's, it's well, it's nice to hear that it does. Well, that's you know, that's I, I love that saying, and I've you know I've heard it a few times. You know, you don't you can't choose whether to engage or not with architecture. It surrounds you at all times. You know, it is as you say, it is always there. <laughs> but one nice piece of architecture will certainly be the castle. <laughs> I just wanted you to say it again. <laughs> Is Beaver, yes, yeah. indeed. And I, I chose this um, because I was... Beaver is another castle, you know, founded soon after the um, uh, the Norman Conquest, the Tosney family. Um, it's in a major castle that enjoys this absolutely spe- spectacular view uh, uh, over the surrounding landscape on a sort of isolated hill. And it's destroyed on at least two occasions in its history. Once in the um, 15th century as part of a a quarrel over a title, in fact, but again after the Civil War. But um, it's rebuilt thereafter. And um, when I went to Beaver, I was trying to... um, I was looking through the enormous um, uh, collection of archives there. Mm. I have to say, you know, one of the real pleasures of doing country life work is when you do come across buildings with important archives and you have the opportunity to read letters and you know accounts and documents i mean you know in a way they're very dusty and boring but in another way they show you a fast you know offer a fascinating insight in into the history of these buildings and um beaver obviously the seat of the dukes of uh, uh, of, of rutland is um it, it's completely reconstructed by elizabeth duchess of rutland who's this beautiful glamorous uh, young wife um, uh, who, uh, of, the, of the then Duke, who, whom she marries in 1801. She's a society beauty. Mm. And we're told um, that she really is the person responsible for completely renewing the castle. Now, the Duke of the day has a, a, a tutor called Edward Bowyer Spark, and his letters mm. to the Duke still survive in the archives at Beaver. And... I, I'm very hesitant of judging people from the past, but you know, genuinely, if you know your Jane Austen, he really comes across as a kind of Mr. Collins character. He writes these obsequious letters to the Duke from whom he expects all his preferments, mm. and they're laced with flattery, um, and they show a shrewd awareness of the value of church preferments. <laughs> And indeed, I believe that Spark goes on um, to become, I think, the Bishop of Ely and is very involved in the uh, in rioting and, and he provokes riots in Ely. He holds on to all kinds of, uh, he asserts his um, authority and, you know, over the, over the town in mm. all kinds of very unpopular ways. And he is truly, a, you know, he does come across a truly dreadful character. <laughs> but I just loved reading the letters. Yeah. I mean, they were just 
marvellous letters, self-serving, beautifully phrased. You could see him composing these things in order to get as much out of the Duke as he possibly could while seeming to be his friend. And he's very involved in overseeing, on behalf of the Duke, the start of remodelling the castle on behalf of the Duchess. And he meets the architect, James Wyatt, and writes this incredibly enthusiastic letter about how Wyatt, this great man who's Mm. known as the architect of George III, comes along um, uh, and looks at the castle and immediately says, you know, you need to romanticise this building, make it much more interesting, and then proceeds to, you know, pour money or demand huge sums of money be poured into this building. So architecture really hasn't changed at all in the past... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> years or so. <laughs> and, and also she, sorry, the Duchess, one other thing, she creates this absolutely extraordinary um, saloon, which is decked up with the panelling allegedly taken from the house of the morganatic wife of Louis XIV, which is called the Elizabeth Saloon. Mm. And it's all decked out with peacocks, which are the emblems of the Rutlands. And um, she clearly, you know, loved beautiful and preferably very expensive things. All this done, of course, in the shadow of the revolutionary wars with France at a time when the English nobility in particular were sort of of congratulating themselves on having um, won (laughs) and were emerging as the most, you know, as as the leaders of the wealthiest nation in the world. And, you know, they, again, were very happy to invest shed loads of money in architecture. I feel that's a sort of, you know constant theme throughout our talk is when things are going well and you feel the need to celebrate just whip up a good castle you, know? <laughs> you almost certainly discover your pockets aren't quite as deep as you thought they were because it's so expensive <laughs> but indeed it's a it's a fascinating thing and, and the regency interiors of Beaver are amazing you know uh, wonderful to see Okay, and so we are now moving on to our last castle, which is a personal favourite of mine because I'm something of a of a modernist, and that is uh, Castle Drogo. Yes, indeed. It's well, I'm always uh, very insistent that castles are not just buildings of the Middle Ages. I mean, I think our popular perception of castles is so formulated, in strangely, by the Gothic revival, which likes to think of goth castles as purely medieval structures. But I mean, as I've already tried to show, these things have a life afterwards, they have a reality um, afterwards. Um, And um, this is one of the most extraordinary buildings in a way, because it is a 20th century Newcastle built um, by Julius Drew uh, and designed by the the architect, of course, well-known to readers of country life, Edwin Lutyens. Mm -hmm. And um, Drew believed that his... um, wishfully probably he wishfully believed that his ancestors came from this small devon village of drogo and he therefore wished to build a castle that dignified his association with this place and lutchins was happy to oblige he'd worked on lots of other um, castle buildings in fact you know places such as Lambay off the off the coast in, in, in Ireland and also for the architectural uh, for the founder of country life, Edwin Lutchins, at Lindisfarne in Northumberland, he'd renewed castles. But at Drogo he had a hilltop site and he de- designed an absolutely enormous building on what was called the butterfly plan. So really in plan it looks like a butterfly with sort of splayed wings. And the tragedy for Drew was that his son was killed in the First World War and when that, and while the castle was under construction. And when that happened, he clearly sort of lost interest 
in this building. I mean, it no longer meant anything. There was no one to inherit it. Again, this idea of castles being bound up with lineage is, I think, very significant. They are, uh, you know, buildings of lineage and heritage. And um, Lutchin's designed the most extraordinary building. In domestic terms, I think it's almost entirely uninteresting. The, the, the main rooms, you know, you could have them anywhere. Yeah. What's marvellous about them is the means of approach and access within the building. So you walk through the front door and there this this wonderful series of staircases that on off one side of the hall, which lead you up to the drawing room and down to the uh, dining room. It's, it, it's really a building of... Of, of circulation you yeah. could be endlessly delighted just walking around it and it enjoys this spectacular view it's sort of modernist castle in the sense that it has great tudor grid windows and the battlements hardly look like battlements they have sort of arrow slits in them yeah and when i most recently visited the real revelation to me which i'd never properly understood before when going there was that uh, the rooftops are intended to be used as a kind of garden or recreation area. And so when you walk on the roofs, which are laid in paving stones, there are all these sets of steps up and down from the towers and turrets of the building. And it is like a stone-walled garden with these wonderful little benches and views out over the landscape. Now, the roofs are not normally accessible, uh, but they have just been restored by the National Trust at, at, at huge expense, a sort of exemplary mm-hmm. project. Um, but it was, you know, it was really wonderful. And I suppose it also reminded me that although I pretend to be a serious architectural historian, I think for myself and for many other people who enjoy going to castles, there is a kind of thrill of clambering up to the tallest turret and surveying the scene. Yeah, as if you sort of own the place. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not necessarily owning it, but it's just exhilarating, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I love it. And Drogo, uh, on actually rather a wet and uh, cloudy day, was nevertheless utterly, utterly uh, spectacular uh, to, to be on the roof and to be sort of surveying this enormous Devonshire landscape. Really remarkable. Well, no, I can I can appreciate that. I sort of grew up in the shadow of Framlingham Castle and I used to take great pleasure uh-huh. walking the, the battlements and imagining what I'd do to my enemies, enemies. <laughs> yeah, ever decide to approach, you know. Boiling oil. Yeah, obviously the boiling oil would have to get involved, some arrows, you know, maybe some swords, but yeah, mostly just boiling oil. So I know I promised five castles. I think we should throw in a little bonus castle. What do you think, John? Ah, uh, yes, I think I think we ought to, oughtn't we? And and um, uh, the obvious one I feel is that, that a, a building. I was thinking about this. A building that almost summarises all that I've been talking about is, of course, Windsor. Yeah. Because um, it is a building that has an absolutely continuous history of occupation that narrowly avoided destruction in the 1650s after the Civil War, but it. The castle it sort of exemplifies, I think, uh, what these buildings mean and have meant, you know, in, in, in the landscape. Windsor, obviously, founded after, immediately after the Norman Conquest. Um, it's laid out with these two, with these enormous parkland areas around it, um, which still survive in the form of the Great Park, which is reconstituted after the Civil War. Um, but the building itself is, you know, the principal seat of, of the monarch. Yeah. And... It's it's been upgraded generation after generation with the most luxurious apartments. It's um, it's also been connected since the 14th century with the Order of the Garter, the Order of Chivalry, which is still in the personal gift 
of the monarch. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in the Middle Ages, it was a castle which linked with the legend of King Arthur, supposed by some that he um, founded the castle, and Edward III in the 14th century, who massively developed the castle and founded the Order of the Garter, um, clearly cast himself in the figure of King Arthur. And so the castle was the natural place for him to you know, uh, create um, his great palace um, after the restoration of uh, English, the, the prestige of English arms in the Hundred Years' War after the disasters of Edward II's reign that we referred to before. But there were further renovations, obviously, in the in the Tudor period, also um, uh, after the Civil War, and um, in the uh, George the Fourth in the um, early nineteenth century, and rearrangements by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, and then most recently of all, what I always think of as the most recent work of castle architecture, the rebuilding after the Great Fire, um, and the point is that it's a very ancient building. It remains in our minds a castle because it is, whatever its defensive qualities. Yeah. Its prestige depends in part upon the great parkland that still surrounds it, all of it which is far beyond the compass of mere wealth. Yeah. This has to be inherited. It becomes an inherited symbol of the monarchy, and um, it is being modernised even now, and it still functions as a setting of state. And obviously, on much more modest terms, you know, there are other castles, I suppose you can think of places, you know, such as Beaver or Annick or Arundel, which yeah. are still ducal castles in their estates operating in some ways in a similar way, though on a more modest level. And in, these are in some ways the bones of our architectural history castles. They, like our great churches, they've just gone on adapting and developing over time. And so they're buildings that I think I love seeing buildings of all periods, but if you want to see buildings that are evolved, that have evolved and have developed in really interesting ways in response to history over long periods of time, castles are some of the best buildings to look at because they do reflect that changing face of society and of history and of political circumstance. So they are buildings that I think, you know, amongst all the others that are wonderful to look at, they offer a very particular perspective on British architecture. And in the and in Windsor itself, I think you have a building that exemplifies their longevity, their associations, in some ways quite ambiguous, mm. but also their splendour. Very good. And so when you when you discuss modernising the castle, what, what does that mean? A sort of indoor swimming pool? <laughs> EV, EV charging points, I, Bluetooth. I don't know that I've ever seen an indoor swimming pool in a castle. Um, but uh, I'm sure now you've made me think. I, but, <laughs> but I mean, I suppose, you know, we've, people have always wanted to live in, you know, in buildings that provide modern comforts. Mm. And as far as I can see, I certainly don't live in one myself. I can't <laughs> speak from personal experience. But from what I see, that of course, those who live in castles still want to, you know, engage with the modern world and have its benefits and all these things. So, I think, uh, you know, that uh, as in every period, you update the bits of the building that you see you want to use. And I suppose increasingly now, Windsor included, castles are enormous, enormously important as tourist attractions. Mm. And so many of their rooms are, on an ordinary basis, given over to, to visitors for people yeah. to look at. And that is in itself a function, but distinct from domestic life, which for nearly all of us now, lacks the scale and formality that it would have had even in, at the beginning of the 20th century. That's because you've not been to my house in Birmingham. 
John. I can tell you, it's, the scale of humanity is, is it, off is the it charts. Yeah. I've heard all about it. Yes. <laughs> I have one anecdote uh, about Windsor Castle, which you know I have no idea whether it's true or not, but I'll happily tell it anyway, which is from when I was in, at school nearby, which is that the McDonald's, which is on sort of Windsor High Street, was known as the fanciest McDonald's in Britain because the then Queen Elizabeth II would only allow it to be built because she had to see it if it looked extremely sort of fancy and in keeping with the town. So it's, it's incredibly ornate and sort of tasteful McDonald's that is, you know, looks fantastic, but is still, of course, surrounded by sort of children screaming at all hours of the day. And you do sort of wonder if, you know, Her Late Majesty would stick her head out the window to tell everyone to just shut the hell up. <laughs> Um, going to your back to your point about these things, you know, with their rooms being open, are all these castles on our that we've discussed today are they available to visit? I'm trying to think. I think they all are. Yes, they are. They are. And Nesborough for free, and um, you know the, the the others are all um, privately owned and um, uh, at one level or another. And but they are all accessible to the public at times. Yes. And I'm right in thinking that you can be booked for private tours around each of these <laughs> castles for a modest fee. As only as an enormous fee. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, John. It's been a fantastically interesting chat. And I've had a very good time and I hope you, the listener, has had a great time as well. Um, if you'd like to know more about what we discussed today, please visit countrylife.co.uk forward slash podcast to see our programme notes links, credits and pictures of the castles that we have discussed Um, other than that thank you very much for listening thank you very much John for talking and have a great day Mm